Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 278 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. I'm just back from picking a giant pumpkin with my grandchildren. It's nice to know that somewhere in Essex, other children are running around a big field choosing pumpkins that our bees help to pollinate. In other news, it's suddenly a lot cooler. Something of a shock for us and our bees, no doubt. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Slightly late in getting the podcast out today, apologies for that. I was interrupted this morning by my young grandchildren who insisted on taking me with them to choose a pumpkin for Halloween. It was more their parents that were keen for me to tag along, I suspect, mainly for childminding duties. But that's what I'm here for, right? It got me thinking about how our colonies had fared this summer on the pumpkin field, as it seems the pumpkins this year are bigger than average because of the summer weather that we and our bees had to endure. I guess the huge amounts of rainfall that had coupled with the spells of quite intense sunshine really helped them to grow to bigger than average sizes. What was the benefit for us and our bees? Well, because of the location, our bees were able to skip across the pumpkin field and over to the borage very easily, so the majority of our summer honey ended up being mainly borage, with a squashy twist, let's say. There were some frames of honey that had predominantly pumpkin in them, but for the most part it was all mixed together. The one thing I try to do is keep honey from different apiary sites separated when extracted, It's nice to have a variety of honey to try. That said, most of our stockists and customers want our regular blend of summer honey, something they know and like. It's only at the food markets and fairs, special events and that kind of thing that we find people are searching for the more unusual apiary-specific honey, maybe something like hawthorn or vetch or, of course, heather, as we had this year. We will be heading back to the pumpkin patch again next season, part of the agreement with our borage farmer. I've kind of fallen into the role of crop pollination manager for them, organising several bee farmers to come along and help out with the pollination of hundreds of acres of borage and pumpkins. I was very grateful this year to Steve, a fellow bee farmer, who was happy to put some of his bees in an additional pumpkin field that we had earmarked for another, but were let down at the last minute. I'm very happy to report that his bees were also just a few hundred yards away from a giant 100-acre site of borage, and he also produced a monster crop of honey. I think like most of the rest of us that were on the borage this year, It was a very good year for borage honey, as it turns out, despite all of my troubles in getting the bees off and up to the heather. But I think I've bored you with that story too many times already. It will be the same routine next year, sharing the borage with fellow bee farmers so we can all get a decent crop of honey, fingers crossed. This weekend, 
has finally brought with it some cooler weather. Long overdue, really, but I am very grateful for the prolonged autumn warmth that we've enjoyed. It's allowed me the chance to check up on pretty much all of the colonies that I needed to see where I had questions about their strength or queen right status. The most important colonies for checking were the bees that we brought back from the heather. I'm obviously putting the cart before the horse this year, and as much as I'm only really just getting to grips with what I should have done in terms of preparation for the heather and how the colonies should have been dealt with on their return back home. There seems to be a huge amount of planning in order to get a good crop from the heather, and then, with everything set and ready, we have to wait for the weather to decide if it wants to help or hinder our efforts and those of the bees. For me, it almost seems like getting a good crop off the heather is a mark of a true master beekeeper who understands what's required of their bees and has everything set up in order to maximise the chances of a crop. I obviously haven't hit those heady heights just yet, but there's still time. For beekeepers everywhere, this process, whether for heather honey, oilseed rape, borage, lime, hawthorn, or whatever the specific monofloral crop they seek is, is a process that, if set up correctly, gives the very best opportunity of success, and it's the same regardless, even if you're just producing a crop of summer honey or spring honey. However, each part of our beekeeping season presents a challenge in how we prepare our colonies to maximise a crop of honey. Of course, there are those beekeepers who are not that bothered if they get a crop of honey or not. Beekeepers who look after their bees purely for the joy of having bees in a beehive at the bottom of the garden. And that's just fine. For those beekeepers, it might be that their challenge is of swarm control or disease control. Whatever your reasons for keeping bees, each season presents a new and often different challenge to the last season. The colder weather marks a change in approach to our honeybee colonies. A great deal more care is required if you still have anything that needs attention. By that I mean opening the hive and carrying out some kind of manipulation, inspection or otherwise messing around with the brood frames. Most beekeepers will have, by now, finished inspections, settled their colonies down for the winter, treated for varroa, fed sugar syrup and have their feet up, tea or coffee on the table and a beekeeping catalogue in hand. That catalogue is most likely to be a virtual online catalogue these days, but even so, flicking between the virtual pages and admiring or even coveting the latest shiny piece of beekeeping equipment is what lazy Sunday afternoons are designed for. Of course, I have my eye on a couple of new items that I'd like to add to the honey room, but also I'm already thinking ahead to the new season and honey production. How can I make things easier for myself? How can I improve my beekeeping skills and honey production ability? Several ideas spring to mind and I'll share these as we head into those darkest days of winter. Something to look forward to maybe. The cooler weather means that at least overnight colonies will be clustering together to maintain that all-important brood nest temperature. But it's not just keeping warm for the brood nest. Our bees also need a minimum temperature to stay alive 
and that can only be maintained with a large cluster of bees all sharing a little warmth between them. Last night's minimum temperature appears to have been a chilly 2 degrees Celsius, that's around 35 degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't see any frosts this morning, but I did have my hat on when we went to the pumpkin field. This drop in temperature means I'm now able to remove the last honey crop of the season, namely ivy. We have around 30 or 40 colonies with supers on for ivy honey. It's a strong tasting, hard setting honey, perfect for soft set honey or creaming. More of that in a moment. But first, what is an issue for us is how we join up the ends of the late season work and still find ourselves in a position to take a crop of ivy honey from mid-September. You see, our normal end of summer routine would be something like this. Last week of July or first week of August, remove the summer honey and immediately place varroa control measures into the hives. Six weeks later, remove treatments and feed for a couple of weeks. You can already see, perhaps, this would take us to the end of September and we'd missed the early ivy flow, which seems to have happened in mid to late August in some parts of Norfolk this year. So how do we manage this? Well, this year, I've not treated any colonies for Varroa in the autumn. Instead, we're concentrating on an oxalic acid treatment in and around December to knock down those Varroa mites, followed up by a Varroa inspection in the spring. This frees up important weeks for foraging both heather and the ivy. All of our colonies have, this year, been situated either on borage, close to borage, or have been in nukes that were kept at our fishing lakes apiary for development and growth. Colonies were taken from the borage to the heather, or back to base, and this combination of borage alone or borage and heather has meant the vast majority of our colonies have not required any food at all this autumn. Combined with a really good ivy flow, we haven't fed any of our regular colonies at all. Only the smaller nukes that have been developing into full-size colonies. The combination of no treatments and no feeding of syrup has saved me somewhere around £3,000. I now need to be careful in managing colonies for varroa mites. I have no doubt they're there, despite not seeing any evidence of excessive damage, apart from a couple of swarms late on. It's essential that I make sure we get that treatment period right so the colonies are not lost next summer. That would be a false economy. I'm confident though I can manage this and with the right plan in place, our colonies should grow nicely in the spring. Early last week, I was carrying out our final inspections on a few colonies, way too late normally, but the very pleasant weather of late September and early October has allowed it. My focus was on colonies that I knew needed some checks, and I'm glad I did. One colony in a commercial hive appears to be queenless. This was a swarm that dropped into a commercial nuke box, and I transferred them into a full-size hive in September. It's always tricky in late autumn to decide if a colony is queenless, has a virgin queen, or has their old queen, but she's on a brood break. It's one reason late inspections are so dangerous. Inexperienced beekeepers see they have no brood 
leap onto the internet and buy in a new queen at great cost, only to find that once introduced, the new queen is killed because there was a home-raised queen waiting to begin laying, tucked away and missed when they were carrying out their late inspections. The commercial colony is currently sat waiting. I'll probably just leave them to it now. This colder weather has arrived. Adding a replacement queen is going to be slightly more challenging and uniting them would have been an obvious solution. The problem is we don't have a stronger colony in a commercial hive. This is the only commercial hive that we have. I'm now fully committed to Langstroth and as such can't very easily unite this commercial colony with anything else. It will be interesting to see what happens to them and I'll have another look in them when we get some reasonable weather in the next couple of weeks. The other colony of interest is my little warm room miracle nuke. Take a look at my videos and listen to some of the previous podcasts for the backstory on this one. Suffice to say they appear to be doing fine. They currently have the appearance of a medium-sized nucleus colony, maybe two and a half frames of brood. You might recall I added a frame of brood from another colony and that has helped perfectly. A full frame of nearly emerging brood about now is going to increase the adult population of this colony enormously and should give them a real fighting chance of getting through the winter. These bees though will perhaps need further help. It might be that with the sudden increase in population they may not have enough food stores to cope and so I will add small blocks of fondant throughout the autumn and winter as I go around hefting. These then really are the final inspections of the year. I won't be splitting open any brood frames now unless we have a drone laying queen or a dead out situation. It will only cause more harm than good. We are where we are and although it's not been a perfect season, I'm happy to be going into the winter with around 120 colonies of various sizes and strength. Finally today, soft set honey. I've been producing a few videos to take you through the entire process as thoroughly as possible, making up soft set honey from scratch, taking hard set granulated honey and through a fairly slowish process, producing some of the finest grained, smoothest set, delicious honey you could ever produce. The method is called the DICE method and is a method I've used on many occasions before when I've forgotten to reserve some previously worked soft set honey. This is a really important point that will save you a lot of time in the future. Make up a large enough batch that will serve to complete any honey orders you have either for sale or dare I say it Christmas presents but always make up more than you need so that you can hold on to a few jars to start the process over again but missing out the all-important pestle and mortar stage. You'll have a jar or two of nicely soft-set honey that you can use as a seed for future batches. If you're a larger producer then maybe hold back a small bucket or two. It will really help speed up the granulation process with the next batch that you produce. The key to a really smooth soft-set honey is patience. Time spent grinding the coarse-set heavily granulated honey into a fine, light-coloured, smooth-as-silk seed honey 
will pay dividends for you, regardless of the type of honey that you use as a seed. I think my favourite to use as the seed honey is oilseed rape. It produces some of the finest crystals to use in seeding a larger batch, regardless of what that batch might be. It probably won't surprise you to know that ivy also grinds down into a really fine seed, this being another honey that granulates in the comb as soon as your back is turned. From start to finish, the soft set honey takes about a week to 10 days. A lot depends on the temperatures used for getting everything going, and if you can control the temperature of the bulk batch of honey that's going to take that seed, so much the better, as it will granulate more quickly but retain the smaller, smoother, crystalline structure. The only real challenge then becomes at what point do you put it into the jars? Too soon and it might develop larger crystals because you're no longer able to stir the honey and break those crystals up. Too late and you might find it solid in your settling tank and unable to flow into the jars. Unfortunately, only trial and error will teach you exactly when to get it into the jars. This mainly because of the ambient temperature that we each have in our bottling rooms or kitchens, the various mix of honey that we've used in our batch of soft-set honey, and how fine the seed honey is when it originally goes into that main batch. However you choose to make up your soft-set honey, good luck with it, and just remember it's going to taste just as good however it turns out. Well that's it for this week. Don't forget to check out my website www.norfolk-honey.co.uk and for my latest videos and podcasts with more updates, tips and techniques it's the same Patreon page www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. And remember I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet.